we are getting a lot of users coming to our page but almost 80% of them are not booking appointments but we also knew that most people when they visit us they book an appointment within 24 hours most of them did have slots available for that time because they were already full and so users were bouncing so what we then started doing was in our algo we also started putting availability as a very important thing right till then we were not even realizing this was an issue so that literally improved our roi by i think like 60% or 70% which is insane wow so for every dollar we spent we made 2 dollars in net revenue which meant that marketing suddenly became the cfo's favorite function why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail how do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries in the age of mobile these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth i'm mada and i'm the host for how i grew this Hi everyone. It's an absolute pleasure to have our next guest, Varun Dubey. Varun is currently the head of marketing at Ola Financial Services and previously he was the VP of marketing and head of monetization of Practo. Varun, it's really awesome to have you here with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mara. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, we're in like this weird time. The world has changed. We were just talking before the show. How are you doing both personally and from a professional standpoint? So I think personally uh, you know it's good uh, you know we're we're at home and safe and of course all of our our teams back at work as well you know we're taking precautions to make sure that everybody's able to work from home safely and and that's the most important thing it's definitely a, a difficult time for everybody i think the world sort of kind of was caught unprepared in some ways we were just talking about this before the show and uh, you know i got got to ola financial about 6 7 months ago so just 3 months after i joined the pandemic sort of hit but the more interesting thing for me was you know just how different a response so adola financial we have three businesses you know we have a lending business where we provide micro credit or short credit lines to people where they can use to pay for things and then we bill them later and we are the largest pay later service in india we have an insurance uh, aspect we sell insurance and we are the largest micro insurance provider about 20 million policies per month and then of course we have a credit card business before this i was at practo which was i would say a more traditional consumer company in the sense that whatever happens let's find more consumers and you know try to sell them things in lending in times of a pandemic what's been very interesting for me to learn has been it's far more important to figure out should i give this guy my product because he may not pay me back so that becomes much more important than necessarily acquiring mm. new users right and that's kind of like in some ways a different definition of growth because you're trying to solve for making sure that you don't have bad loans or people are not kind of taking the money and not paying you back and if you do that right then you come out significantly ahead at the end of you know whatever that is whether you know it was for example it's a recession like the one we had in 2008 yeah. or you know slow down that we're kind of seeing in many parts of the world now so that's been a much more different perspective for a consumer business that i had to kind of wrap my head around and i certainly had moments where you know um, i would run up to the team with an idea and i would say hey here is how we can get a million more users probably i don't let's try it out and they'd be like yeah but what if they don't pay me back so maybe we don't <laughs> get the million users and we are better off and if that was kind of like new to me so that's been interesting um, but of course you know we continue to find ways in which we can get more reliable users to be added to us things are definitely starting to look up in india the economy is opening up most more and more more cities are opening up so we're seeing transactions and volumes coming back fairly fast so that's good so fingers crossed that you know this gets over and you know we can all get back to providing financial services to the world and your are your users just in india as well or are they are they in another countries 
So uh, for our financial services, we're right now focused on India. Uh, of course, you know, we also have the cabs business with Ola Cabs and that's yeah. in multiple countries, but financial services in India. Interesting. That's such an interesting concept. Like you can just like in most, as, as you said, in most businesses, including, you know, even enterprise, you just want to have as many users as possible as long as they can pay you. So how do you like decide if a user can pay you back or not? Do you guys have algorithms looking at this? Uh, so we have a, we have a, pretty awesome uh, risk team that would do a lot of this work beforehand. And of course, we have a lot of uh, interesting algorithms that are proprietary to us that tell us, they kind of give us indications of, you know, what's the likelihood that if we give a loan amount of X to person Y, the chances that they will pay us back. So far, our books look really good. So, you know, we've done a good job. Uh, You know, we have a few million users, uh, you know, who use the service every month and they're, they're so far paying us back. So that's good. Of course, as we scale, you know, these algorithms will evolve. Uh, so we take multiple sources of information, data, of course, some, a lot of data that users provide to us as well that then tell us what we should do. So it's, a, it's almost like a whole new way of underwriting without a lot of the traditional, I guess, bank stuff like savings or fixed deposit, et cetera, which kind of builds your credit out in, in those environments. So we don't have savings. We don't have credit. Like you, you can't come and give us money and open a savings account with us. Right. But we do have a lot of other information, you know, that, that uh, obviously with the right consent, we, we, we take from you so that we can then provide you the right kind of credit line. So, you know, we were talking about right before the show about what this means for being a marketer and how maybe this is better. This, this time um, gives you mm-hmm. more opportunities. But also, you know, I was reading, I was looking at your LinkedIn and you had this um, article about remote work and the serendipity that plays a central role in innovation. And then with like remote work, you have less chance encounters, meaning less innovation. So maybe like talk about the pros and cons of this, this time, you know, is it, are we going to see less innovation or is this actually like good for businesses? That's the question that I struggle with. I think, you know, you could certainly argue that the more constraints you put, the more innovation thrives in some ways. So necessity is the mother of invention. And uh, maybe these constraints will push us to develop tools that, are, that, that allow for this better in a more distributed remote environment. I do believe, though, in the power of serendipity in terms of, you know, walking up to random people yeah. and bumping into somebody and having a discussion and then that kind of starts, sparks an idea. And I think that's, in many ways, how creativity is probably defined. If one could take a stab at defining creativity, that, you know, you kind of start connecting disconnected experiences in some ways, and then you're transferring knowledge from A to B. And obviously, you can't have all the knowledge, so you need people around you who have done different things that you can bounce things off. So that's definitely, uh, I think, uh, a challenge uh, in an environment where everyone is remote. What we try and do is organize some brainstorm sessions or you pick up the phone and call. So we're trying to do some simulation of serendipity, but of course, it's not the same yet. Uh, And we haven't fully figured out how to do serendipity yet. But the creative side of marketing in terms of, you know, how do we do creatives, reviews, etc., We've changed uh, certain aspects of how we do the flows. So, for example, you know, we work a lot more closely with the agency right from the sketches, even before they go into actually any doing any renders or any production material. So we're like, hey, if you have a pen and paper that you've sketched on, send it to us and, you know, we will ideate on that. Uh, so we get involved much earlier than before. Uh, and also what, what I found is, you know, when you do get some material from your agency or from the team, annotating on an iPad with your pencil on specific areas that and your comments is... I think a hundred times more efficient than, you know, getting on a call and explaining to them or, you know, talking to them through it. So those are some of the things that we've changed. But I, I think this is a this is a very important problem. I mean, if you think about it and 
you know, one of my kind of side things is to learn about architecture and how people have done things. And of course, and in startups, of course, everybody loves Steve Jobs, uh, I think. <laughs> uh, so if you, uh, and, and I think for very, very good reason. But if you see, right, he designed the Pixar headquarters to be centered around this ability of people to run into each other. Yeah, and then of yeah. course, then he designed this massive spaceship campus, which is round, so that you have to necessarily walk the whole floor to reach wherever you're going on the other side of the floor. So you bump into people. And if someone is designing entire offices around this, in probably one of the most innovative companies and the genius of our times, I think there is something there that we haven't yet figured out how to quantify, but we should. And I think that's probably one of the most impacted areas of this work from home remote environment. I am not sure how to solve it. I hope people much smarter than me are working on this problem. But if we don't, I think then we will certainly have challenges on uh, in innovation. I am an optimist. So I think this will get solved. Some genius somewhere will figure out and make, a, make the next $500 billion company on, hey, here is how you do serendipity. Use my tool X. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard. I totally get it. I found myself sometimes. I was in a meeting yesterday and we're talking about something. I'm like, oh, since we're in this meeting, I've been thinking. And I had this idea. And like, you're right. It was with my co-founders. If they were in, in the office, I would have just gone up to them and talked to them. But this way, yeah. like there was just like, I've been thinking about this. I want to have a conversation about it. And then I ended up using a different meeting. But what if the meeting wasn't there? It's like very hard to tap people on the shoulder and have a discussion. And I, I, pers- I mean, I personally miss the human interaction too, yeah. uh, for sure. Just kind of catching up with somebody you haven't seen in a while in the office. I miss that as well. I mean, of course, we have more important things to worry about as a world right now. So, uh, but I hope we can bring that back. Yeah, so do I. I think, you know, we've been talking about like what would the future look like when people can go back to work? Will everyone go back? And probably not. But I think we'll definitely be something Mm -hmm. where like once a week you have to come to the office for those interactions, for those catch up. So I, I think this whole thing is just such a fundamental shift, right? It's there is a tactical aspect of people not going to work or whatever, but I think it's just more profound because a very large number of people have suddenly realized that in many cases, you know, physical presence is overrated. It is not required. Yeah, I, that's definitely right? true for me. I think I, I was so skeptical about like working from home and people being yeah. productive. And I'm like, oh, actually everyone is pretty productive, including myself. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you know, actually in a, in a, in a funny kind of way, the productivity on the specific task has probably yeah, gone up because serendipity is less and people are walking up to you less and you kind of don't have to put your headphones on the to tell people hey, I'm busy, is, like, I don't talk to me. Focus yeah. is like way more. But I think there are so many industries that are going to fundamentally change. And I think for every industry, I believe that structurally things will change. So for example, I don't know, let's say you're in San Francisco, you live in San Francisco, you work in San Francisco and uh, or Bombay in India. And now suddenly you no longer have to come to work. And so what do you do, right? You pack up your bags and you go to probably your hometown, wherever your parents are, or, or the town you like more, but you could never live before because your job is in San Francisco. So now that town has a bunch of people who are still making San Francisco or Bombay level salaries, but they now live here and they want all those comforts. And so entire amount, entire industries kind of start getting set up in those towns. So we fundamentally decongest large urban centers, which is, I think, a good thing. But for companies, that completely changes how you think of, if you're e-commerce, that completely changes how you thought about logistics because where you put the warehouses, how you thought about the people, how you thought about density of people who are doing the delivery completely changes. Of course, transportation completely changes. So I wonder if given that we many companies have continued to do business without people flying for business meetings, will they continue to fly once everybody comes back, right? People have always had this yeah. relationship with business travel. 
how much of that will come back because people are like well why do you need to go you can just zoom you were zooming for last five months i think you're right travel will like i think the travel industry will be impacted for a long time i don't know if it'll be down necessarily because you know people may travel more for leisure now because they can and they can work from anywhere so the leisure travel may go up who knows so for example if let's say you were not tied to a location you could also say that hey i'm going to stay in a different country every every month yeah. and you could just go there and so that kind of travel might actually go up yeah i don't think anybody knows but the way i try to think about it is that i think it is probably more important to zoom out and look at the macro view for your business and your company and how that is fundamentally changing than to zoom in and look at kind of like try to find a niche because i believe that fundamental structures themselves will change because of this so imagine if you no longer have office cost as a company how does that change your pnl and if that changes your pnl then can you price a product lower if you price a product lower suddenly you can be probably in a whole new market segment that you never thought before was possible or a whole new set of people need your product like zoom for example this was not built for a consumer use case right i mean they're trying to scramble and i'm hoping they'll, they'll you know they will get there but this was entirely an enterprise product which suddenly every single consumer is now using uh which is insane so what does that do for them in terms of business opportunities can you sell things on zoom or can they add e-commerce to zoom can, and therefore can they become a com- competitor to amazon in many ways who knows I, i mean i don't know but i feel that the opportunity is to take a more macro view of the business and this is when i say business i mean not just the product but also of course the marketing because the anxieties will change the needs will change what people care about will change fundamentally and so i think this change is much bigger than whatever duration of covid is going to be and it's going to be much more structural and fundamental than i think we realize right now yeah that i think that's super interesting and i definitely agree with with a lot of that i think you know as you said some in some areas there's going to be a boom and uh, and people are going to take advantage and some businesses are going to do really well because of this but it's definitely going to affect others and it's still tbd which is which which is uh you know i think markets and stocks are going to be it's an interesting time to be in, in that too because there's so much uncertainty and volatility i mean think about education right if i could study from anywhere then maybe harvard shouldn't be charging me 50000 or 100000 a year right and then at the same time if if the class is anyway online then there is so let's say a great teacher x who was fundamentally yeah. changing people's lives and you know there are very few of those unfortunately but let's say there is one today that teacher is limited by how many people can physically sit in his lecture room but that well, cannot be the case so can can this guy teach a 5000 class people class well, what tools have to be built for that i don't i don't know i don't agree with that i mean i'm teaching a class at stanford in the fall mm-hmm. and it's online but i limited the 60 people because you even if it's online i think what makes a class mm-hmm. good is people interacting with you with each other being able to ask questions i think teaching to 5000 students it's not that different than like a video right is how do you interact with 5000 students how can you like touch but maybe you're right maybe there are ways so i think you're right that given the way i mean the way i think about it is given the current set of tools that we have and the sort of short term fixes that we have put on education probably make it really really hard you know both for the teacher and for the student but the way i think about it is uh, you know if you look at for example khan academy and what they have been able to do you know with just something as simplistic as youtube videos and i'm not saying that that youtube videos is the answer but i feel like given the opportunity there is a lot of scope for innovation for companies to build these new types of tools for a new kind of world where maybe the students are remote and that fundamentally democratizes a lot of this stuff right so imagine that there are people say in africa or in even in india 
who can now afford that education because they don't have, they don't have to take yeah. visas and they can That's just fly out of the way. And so uh, I think a lot more innovation is going to come out of this uh, right. as these things change. Uh, I just hope that, you know, more companies kind of take a macro view and say how to reimagine their business and products, which is where I feel the opportunity lies. That's cool. Okay, so let's go back to you. I know we, uh, this sure. was a very interesting, interesting like, kind of analysis of what we think the world can go. But if we look back at your past and how you got to where you mm-hmm. are, tell us a little bit about, you know, how did you get into marketing? How did you end up at Ola? What's your, like, what's your personal growth story? So I, I grew up in Mumbai. Mumbai is Bollywood city. That's where all the movies are made in, in India. I spent a school there. I went to college there. And uh, my first job, you know, was to, to write uh, reviews of tech products for a publication called Digit. The way I kind of got into that job was, you know, I, I was a very avid reader and I used to also build computer systems for kind of like pocket money when I was in college. And so, uh, you know, they were looking for someone to do reviews. And so I, I still remember writing to the editor. And this is kind of, you know, when you're young, you're a little more foolhardy than you realize. I wrote to them saying, uh, I think their ad said something like, you're looking for a really, really good product reviewer to join. And I think my application basically said, you're looking for a great product reviewer. I am fantastic. You should hire me. Like, literally, I think that's, what, I think that's some, roughly something like that is what Talk about confidence. Said. Okay, that's so, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, like I said, like more foolhardy than his wife. That's but they were very kind. Uh, they were very kind. You know, they, of course, you know, called me in and I went there and, uh, you know, I got the job and it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. I couldn't believe someone was paying me to play with tech products, which I would have done for free. But, you know, that really gave me an appreciation for understanding and writing from someone else's perspective because I was writing for someone else to understand, not for my own understanding. And I was trying to explain to somebody a concept. Uh, you know, back then, I remember Nokia had a touchscreen phone. And this is like 2004. So this is way before the iPhone. It was obviously to me what a touchscreen phone was, but I was trying to figure out how do I explain this in words to somebody who's not going to see the phone. And uh, of course, you know, that was like the largest tech publication in India then. And our readers were not shy. So if they didn't like something or disagreed with you on something, they would call you and tell you that. That was really fun, you know, because India is so diverse. And of course, you know, I, I was quite young and I had not been to all parts. I don't think it's even possible to go to all parts of India. But our magazine reached everywhere. And, you know, I got calls from all kinds of cities and I got on towns and villages. And I would talk to them and try to understand how they are seeing and what they are thinking about. And if when you, when you kind of live in cities and you grow up in a big city like Bombay, there are many things you just don't realize. So for example, I had no concept of the fact that people don't have 24 hours electricity in some parts of India, right? Because Bombay has 24 hours electricity forever. So I didn't even realize that was a thing. And that's why I could never understand, uh, you know, why people were complaining about or asking about things like power backup and, you know, how long does this last? Or your DVD is too big and it takes me too long to play this game, etc. I'm like, what do you mean it's too long? Just like play for two more hours. Like who's, who's complaining about that? The reason was they got power for only five hours. So, uh, you know, it kind of was a big reality check for me to realize that you are not the user that you're writing for. So write for the user, not for yourself. And then, of course, you know, from there, I went to another publication. And then finally, I joined NVIDIA, which was a gaming company, which was another cool job where, you know, I, I, I ran comms for them for India and Middle East. I was, I think, like the fifth guy they hired, or at least the first five people they hired on the business side in India. So me and a few other people, we kind of built that out for India and Middle East. You know, so that was a very strong constant. I, I ran all communications. And uh, from there, then I, you know, went to another company. And then I landed at Qualcomm, where Qualcomm was trying to build a Snapdragon consumer brand. 
and I spent a lot of time within Qualcomm as well as with a lot of our telcos and handset partners, trying to understand the consumers and you know how do we grow the business. And it gave me a very so Qualcomm is a very interesting company because of course they are the technology owner. They don't just sell chipsets, but they own the fundamental technology like 4G or 3G is fundamentally their technology. And so the goal there was really not necessarily to just sell more chipsets. It was to grow the category. Mm. Because if the category grew, you're going to buy my tech anyway, because there's basically the one, that's the only option. And that was a very different worldview for me, right? Till then, it was all about, hey, here's my product. How can I get it? Get more people to buy it. But how can I get people to buy my product and not the someone else's product? But in this, it was more about how do I get more people to buy smartphones? How do I get more people to use the internet? And what do I need to do? Or, you know, when I say, I mean, what do what does Qualcomm and all of us need to do to get internet to more people or to get handsets to more people and let people understand what smartphone means? We spent four years there, you know, uh, that was the first, I think the first commercial launch of LTE in the world, after which everybody kind of moved to 4G LTE around India and, and many other places. And of course, now we have billions of people on it. So that was very, very exciting. What are some things you do to grow a category? I think, you know, we've talked a lot about growth, but we haven't really touched, I don't think we have any guests that talked about this, like growth of a category. Uh, what are some things that you do differently? How do you think about that? What it teaches you to do, and one of the things you have to do is really focus on the user need because you sort of don't have a horse in the race, right? So for example, at, you know, when I was at Qualcomm, I didn't care who got the 4G subscriber, whether it was operator A or operator B or operator C, as long as one more user got access to 4G. Similarly, I didn't care whose handset sold, you know, was it Samsung or was it HTC or was it LG or whoever, as long as I could convince one more person that smartphones are fundamentally better. And that changes, that makes you much more focused on the reality of the consumer need rather than, hey, look, here is this cool tech we built. And so how can we sell this to the user better? And that's a very sobering experience. You know, for example, I remember we had gone, so we had a lot of these really deep immersions in uh, rural parts of India. And we went to this place and I remember uh, that I was talking to somebody there and there was a person and there were many such people like this who was deciding between, I have, you know, say 50 rupees today, right? Which is like not like 70 cents today in, in US dollar terms. And should I spend this on recharging my phone or should I send this on food? That was the choice they were making and they were recharging the phone. Wow. And I just could did not even know how to respond to that because, you know, being in cities and, you know, being sort of within the privileged few, the, I remember very distinctly reflecting on myself on the way back to, to home that the biggest decision I will make this year is I, which iPhone, should I buy the iPhone or should I buy that Samsung? That, that, that was like my biggest conflicting moment in my life at that point in time. And I was saying, here is somebody saying food versus access to telecom, right? And I think that's what, that's the view you have to take. You know, it doesn't matter if your Snapdragon processor can do 2.4 gigahertz of speed. It doesn't matter. What matters is that that guy should get four more hours of battery life so he can have lunch. And how do you convince everybody else in the ecosystem sort of start thinking around those terms? And of course, at some point in time later, everybody kind of caught on to this battery life issue and, you know, everybody sort of started moving towards that. But that was sort of my first insight into, you know, uh, starting to build it. And of course, you know, the tag, the, the brand promise of Snapdragon evolved to become mobility without compromise, which means that, you know, you will have a mobile phone, you will have a smartphone, you will have a high-speed connection, but you will not have to sacrifice battery life for that. And I, I think it's been many years, so maybe it has evolved further, but I, I think 
that still probably holds true for many people today in most parts of the world. I think that's fundamentally different about category versus uh, versus growing your own products base. That you have to you have to get much more real about what the consumer actually needs, and then how do you influence other people who are probably not even part of your company to sort of see that and understand the opportunity and then try to crack it. And you know what's interesting is that 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 transcends kind of across multiple aspects. Right? It's not just the technology companies or the consumer companies, but even the government. Right? How do you help the government understand that this is what it means from economic upliftment? For example, how do you help them understand for every million people who get a smartphone, this is how much more GDP your company can, country can, country can have? People much smarter than me did it. I didn't do it, but you know, as a company, uh, you know, you have to obviously get really solid economists to figure that out. But but that's kind of the the thing, right? So I, you you can Google some of these stats now that. Uh, you know, for every percentage increase in internet penetration, this is how many percentage points a GDP is likely to grow, because economic opportunity per capita income grows. People spend more, people buy more, people are connected. You kind of change or solve the accident of birth, right? I got very, very lucky to have some of these great jobs, many of these great jobs. But I wonder if I would have gotten them, or I would have even known about them if I had not been in Bombay. Right, or for someone like that, you could say that about someone born in San Francisco or LA or, or wherever. Right, so there is a lot of benefit that we get because of accident of birth in terms of where we are born, and I think connectivity kind of gets rid of that in many yeah. ways. So the, now, if somebody's somebody's in a smaller town, they have access to the exact same job site as me, exact same information as me, and can apply for the same job as me. So that is that is real empowerment, and uh, I think that has huge, obviously, country level benefits for upliftment. Uh, so that's that's kind of like how I. That's I, cool. I Qualcomm, of course, but also how I always thought about my job at Qualcomm, saying that look, your job is to solve accident of birth. In some ways, saying that how do we get more people yeah. to get connected to this? I love that. So then, from Qualcomm, you moved to Practo. Yes, uh, I moved to Practo. Uh, you know, at that time, Practo was very young. I think uh, you know this is 2014. You know, we had just done Series A a year back. I think about four million dollars, and you know, we had a, I think a few hundred thousand users every month. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, and we were just sort of building the Practo was just starting to build the consumer side out. For the five years before that, Practo had spent a lot of energy in selling software to clinics so that the whole clinic could be digitized. And now it was, you know, using that base of doctors, which is in the thousands, to really help consumers discover those doc- doctors so that the people could go to those doctors. And I joined just about at that time, and that that movement towards consumer was happening. And I was there for about five years. You know, we went through, of course, you know, we rose, I think we raised totally around $200 million over that time. We went from a few hundred thousand to about serving about 200 million patients a year. Wow. Which was insane. That's amazing. In- Any interesting growth? Yeah, I mean, so many. Um, you know, first of all, I did not realize how broken healthcare was till I got there. Uh, and I have been petrified of falling sick ever since. Uh, so, you know, it's it's... Very interesting. And, you know, uh, I did not know this, but, you know, in 2016, so what does Practo do, right? So it's just, just so that everybody understands. So Practo has three services. You know, you can go on Practo and you can search for a doctor. Uh, we, we give a lot of details about education history, years of experience, and of course, verified patient reviews. So you can see what other patients are saying about this doctor and a bunch of other signals that will help you understand if this guy is good or not good, etc. Uh, and then second service is, of course, you know, medicine delivery. So if, if the doctor writes your prescription, we, you know, you can get a medicine from Practo as well. And then the third thing is diagnostic tests. And of course, you can you can get this as a subscription. So you can 
have a doctor on chat with you 24/7 so you can message anytime and you know they will take care of you uh, and practice does this now across i think about maybe more than 100000 doctors in india and uh, uh, you know the bits of roughly 200 million patients a year between 150 to 200 million patients a year but all of this came much later so you know when you say something very simple like help people find the right doctor what does that mean and you know for practice it start the journey started as a very basis very 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 fundamental level which is first of all the person that i'm telling you about is he really a doctor is he or she really a doctor right and there is a 2016 survey that who did that came out which said that 56% of practicing allopathic doctors in india have no medical qualification so they're not even doctors oh my 56%. god 56% so that's more than one in two right and then 30% have not even passed class 10 so uh, but they are practicing allopathic doctors they are prescribing medicines they are doing all of this and and this is a who study so you can you can you know your your, your listeners can google this and, and and read the study in detail so the first problem in finding the right doctor is to make sure that when when we are recommending a doctor it is actually a real doctor uh, which meant that you know we had to go to a lot of places collect a lot of data across uh, centers where the doctors get certified so we had all the data we could verify the fact that when you submit your details to us you know those are real details they are actually matching the government records of whichever college you passed out from or whichever board you passed out from in the state once you do that so now we're sure that you're really a doctor we have to also figure out what are you a doctor of and in many areas uh, of specialization that is not a settled issue so there are various interpretations of you know what the rules say and there are certain exemptions that you get or certain older rules are continued to apply which means that certain people who should be eligible aren't eligible to be called something so now we have to then solve that which was a mammoth task that we had to do to help bring the community on board and say help us figure this out because we are not doctors ourselves so we can't figure out who should be allowed to be called a pediatrician or who should be allowed to be called an endocrinologist or a diabetologist etc and some of the commonly used terms aren't even officially recognized by the medical council which is the regulatory body so we had to then solve that and then third came now that this person is really a doctor and we know what he is a he or she is a doctor of now we will tell you if he is a good or a bad doctor basis patient reviews and a bunch of other things mm. so find the right doctor was this kind of like three step problem that we had to solve over several years and once we had this sorted is really when you know we were able to really push hard and you know scale the growth etc so and and that is also a very interesting thing you know because if i go back to the first television commercial that we did right way back in you know 2015 we wanted to sort of get a lot of users on board etc and i remember you know going to this agency and you know they were the largest agency for media buying in india and we were talking about a tv commercial and i had limited experience in that and i certainly did not understand the language they were talking about some grps and a bunch of stuff and they were very very kind to me they spent 4 5 hours explaining to me all of these terminologies but i did not quite get the hang of it and in the end i asked them a simple question saying tell me whatever this number is what does this need to be for me to get an app downloaded and a transaction and they said it doesn't work like that yeah and then they went back and explained to me the whole thing all over again and uh, you know so i i took a weekend to sort of think over it because you know we were going to spend like around 8 or 10 million dollars on that which is not small and what i concluded was that the reason why this methodologies had adopted had come about was because they were modeled on fmcg businesses Yeah, and the challenge is that FMCG businesses fundamentally face is that when their user sees their ad and when the user buys the product, are not necessarily correlated. So, for example, if everybody watches TV at nine in the evening, then Coke has to advertise at nine in the evening. Yeah, nobody is going to go out and buy Coke at nine in the evening. But we didn't have that problem. 
Like you could download my app anytime, anywhere. Yeah. So I went to my engineering team and I, I and I requested them saying that, hey, can can you give me like a dump from our servers so that I can try and correlate when my ad has run on TV and which version of my ad has run on TV and correlate that to downloads and transactions in a database. And that will tell me which spot and which creative version of my ad is working the best. And I will keep changing this uh, as I know which is working, which is not working. So my engineering team took offense and said, you've come to practice engineering team. We don't do Excel. We will build you a tool. So I was like, fantastic. Please build me a tool. So, so they built a tool in which, you know, we would get this data real time and that made our life much simpler. And that taught me two very important things. The first is we know nothing about consumers as market is. So we should, you know, kind of be more humble. And two, nobody knows anything about any new category because, so we had four ad versions and, uh, we all unanimously agreed that one out of those four was the worst one and we should probably not even waste money on it. But then, you know, the... the that was the best one. Started. That was like the second best. And, you know, every single person, including, you know, our creative agency and our media agency and us and everybody else was convinced that that one is not going to work. And that was the second best performing ad for us. So that also told me that there is a lot of dogma in the industry in general. And uh, that has, and it's not their fault. It's just that, it has never been possible to measure what's going on with marketing more now than yeah. ever in the history of marketing. And I think that's good for marketing because it kind of takes the function from being this esoteric, unexplainable thing that it has been for some time in many cases to this hyper metric focused, yeah. directly measurable ROI oriented function, which is how people should look at marketing. And so that was like our first twist with it. And of course, you know, that, that experiment allowed us to significantly reduce our cost of acquisition because obviously we were only putting money into the most efficient slots and we were changing slots and our agency was amazing at enabling us to do that, which is because that's not very common. But the fact that we had the data to back that, you know, really gave them also, they, they also got excited because, you know, they were for the first time seeing, we always believed X spot works, but does it actually work? Does that show actually work for you? We, know, we now know it doesn't. And it, maybe it's true for your company or your product or your category, but now at least we know for sure it doesn't work. So that was very exciting. And of course, you know, we grew our base almost six, seven X over two, two, three months with this, uh, which was really helpful in kind of putting the company on the map and, you know, establishing us as the leader in the category, which, which we continue to, which Practo continues to be. And then of course, you know, we built out multiple different things. And uh, once the user growth sort of happened, you know, then of course, you know, we put all of our focus on revenue growth towards in the last, in the last two, two and a half years that I was there. And there again, we did something similar where, it was a new area for us uh, in terms of, you know, how do we track precisely how my marketing is driving revenue? Because till then, a lot of our growth had been very, either very SEO or very sort of TVC and top, you know, ATL, large ATL spend level. Our performance marketing was kind of an engine that we were building out or paid marketing overall was an engine we were building out on the digital side. And so what we did was we basically paused all marketing for like a month and a half. Like we went to zero. And in that month and a half, we worked with tech and product to measure every inch of our website from a user standpoint, like everything. Like I knew which users are coming from which channel by clicking on which ad and then going on which page and then from there where they're going and what they're seeing and what they're clicking and how many days later they're coming back and what they're buying. And we would get this real time or near real time, like 15, 20 minute delay or whatever. And that completely changed how we understood our users. So let me give you a very simple example. So we realized that, you know, through our uh, search engine marketing, uh, you know, we're getting a lot of users coming to our page, but almost 80% of them are not booking appointments, right? So we were very perplexed that, you know, if there is somebody who's specifically searching for a query and then yeah. coming to the page and then seeing the doctors and they're not booking, so why are they not booking? 
So we put Hotjar and, uh, you know, with that, we could kind of see some of the videos and we realized that what was happening is that the slot they were looking for. So for, we were showing the doctors yeah. by, we were showing the doctors by brilliance of doctors. So saying that, hey, yeah. this is a great doctor, this is a great doctor, this is a great doctor. But we also knew that most people, when they visit us, they book an appointment within 24 hours. So if you're coming today, most yeah. no later than tomorrow will you book. Most of them did have slots available for that time because they were already mm-hmm. full. And so users were bouncing. So what we then started doing was in our algo, we also started putting availability as a very important element. Right? Till then, we were not even realizing this was an issue. We thought, you know, that's cool. quality or so that and that like literally improved our ROI by like, I think like 60% or 70% or something like that, which is insane. Wow. So in very quickly after we put this insanely measurable thing and, you know, we called, we called the whole tool Veritas because that's like truth. And it, I tell you the story about, you know, why we came to Veritas, uh, the name. Uh, in a bit, but uh, but what this did was, you know, it made our performance marketing net positive. So for every dollar we spent, we made two dollars in net revenue, which meant that marketing suddenly became the CFO's favorite function, <laughs> right? Because every meeting was like, no, whatever you want to do, instead of doing that, give the money to marketing because I know they'll they'll make me profitable fast. Wow, because that's that's not a bad place to be. Yeah, that's like great, right? Like the CFO's batting for you, that's kind that's of awesome. the dream for marketing people. But, yeah. but it's possible today. So how we came about this and why we shut it down and why we called it Veritas, right? Because what we started realizing as we were starting to scale up our performance marketing the first time around is that the count that of users that we were supposed to be getting from, you know, the advertising channels. So for example, channel A says, hey, we sent 2,000 people to you. Our data said two reached us, two, like not even a hundred, like two reached us. So we will just you know, for lack of a better word, extremely skeptical of what everybody else was saying in terms of the ad platforms. And so we said, hey, we're just going to build it on our, we'll just build the attribution system on our side so that, you know, we know what's really going on. And I know exactly which platform is giving me what, so I can, you know, kind of divide my marketing dollars on that. And so we paused everything, Uh, you know, sadly, uh, we also burnt like almost quarter of a million dollars doing the wrong channel because our tracking was messed up. And so we shut everything down, like I said. And we rebuilt the whole thing from scratch. And then, of course, you know, we, we really scaled it up to, uh, you know, that channel alone then became 30% of the company's revenue, which was incredible, like in, in a year, uh, I think, which is quite awesome. So, uh, I mean, my biggest learning was if you are selling a digital service, there is no excuse for approximation. You should not be approximating anything because we, we linked our user journey all the way to our billing system. So yeah. if the guy, if the guy bought and we did not get billed, then marketing didn't get credit for that revenue because there was no revenue. So that meant that marketing was now, you know, hyper-focused on the billing system more than even the finance team because we spent the money on the user. Yeah. So we want the, the credit to come to us. Right. And I think, I think that's the right way to build it. I totally understand. And I think that's probably one of the ways the branch grew. I'm kind of curious about what do you think about all the changes that Apple's making and how this will affect marketers and the industry, right? Like removing the IDFA and removing user level tracking. So everything has to be aggregate. And there's no way of deduping with, yeah. with SK ad network, you can't dedupe anymore. And so yeah. it's basically like there's this trend in the market and Google's probably going to follow suit of actually removing that. And I think, you know, like our stance at branch is that we are going to try to continue to provide that with our predictive matching, but some of the other attribution some of the other attribution providers are just like saying, no, we're just follow Apple's suit. I personally think Apple is using their power and not really thinking about the implications. Mm-hmm. 
but I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this before. Um... I think it's a very interesting question and I am a little split on that because as, as a consumer of technology services, of course, I would like my privacy and I love my privacy. But when I put on my marketing hat, of course, you know, what I want to do is make sure that I am reaching the right set of users. Yeah. So I think what's going to happen is, of course, I think there is going to be a larger play between, you know, a large company with no advertising revenue who's going to try to, who's competing with a company with primarily advertising revenues. Uh, and they're going to talk about privacy and they're going to talk about, hey, we are also private and there's going to be some meeting in the middle, probably. And I guess, I think there are some antitrust hearings today in the US. So we'll find out what everybody says. But I think what's what's even more important than before uh, in this direction, in, in if this were come to pass, you need to know your users even more than them. So as a, as a marketer, your only defense is that you have to understand your users even more directly. The more you understand them, the more you will be able to figure out what's going on on each platform. Of course, you know, there is not going to be a directly attributable kind of issues. Those will continue to happen. But I can't imagine a marketer doing a good job in the future with these limitations coming in unless they have a hyper clear view of who their consumer really is. Because what, that, what this essentially means is that you're not going to be able to target at a user level. You're going to be able to target more at an attitudinal level, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. in some and so the more ability you have of understanding this, the better it is. And I think in some ways that is going back to the true roots of what marketing began as. You know, do you understand someone well enough to explain to them in their own, in the way that they will understand your perspective on the world and how your product helps them, helps their lives get better? And I think that's that's the mission for marketers in my head, right? You ha- you see the world a certain way and you help your consumer see it from your point of view that how will your product yeah. make his or her life better, right? And I think that, that kind of takes you back to your roots as a marketer rather than in some ways hacking it through uh, with some of the great tools, uh, you know, like Branch. So I think it's going to be somewhere in the middle. I think it's not going to be as bad as not having anything. It's probably not going to be as good as we have it now. It's probably going to be somewhere in the middle. And then things will evolve. Things will evolve. Like I said, uh, restrictions will make all of us more innovative. So we'll see. But I, I do believe in some ways that the world at large needs more, not less privacy. Yeah, um, I agree with that. I think there are some people who believe that privacy is dead and I am not one of those people. I think people feel privacy is dead because a large number of people haven't realized that the privacy has been violated as yet. And as soon as they start realizing, you know, they will not be okay with it. So, I, you know, for example, at Practo, uh, you know, we were in healthcare and that's a very sensitive topic uh, within consumers. Even if we had the consent to reach out to a user for marketing reasons. So first of all, we marketing led the charge to make sure that all data was always anonymized and we had no access to direct data for every single consumer. No human being could see any of that at all. Nobody, no marketing person, nobody, uh, you know, it was systematized. Algos could see or whatever and, and then match it. And then we put another layer on top, which said that even if somebody gives me uh, consent to reach out to them, here are a set of issues on which I will never reach out to somebody. And you know what, 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 what I realized what, uh, was that as Practo grew, and I think Practo probably put more effort in this than most companies, in my opinion, because as Practo grew to say 50, 100, 150, 200 million users, we started really running into a lot of challenges that were more societal. Right? So for example, we learned that very often. So the shallow view of healthcare many people have is that it's a family thing. There is somebody who's a caretaker in the family and he takes care, he or she takes care of everybody else's health, right? So there is, for example, the wife who takes care of the kids, 
or maybe the husband takes care of the wife etc so there is usually a person who is more proactive about healthcare in each family that's kind of like the superficial view and that's true to some extent but what we started learning is that there are a lot of issues that wives have that they don't tell husbands or husbands have that they don't tell their wives and they don't want them to know or maybe the son doesn't want to tell the mother or the mother doesn't want to tell somebody else or there is pressure from the family for the daughter in law to get pregnant or have kids and she doesn't want to have kids but you know not always she can go back and tell her mother in law hey i to hell with you i don't want to have kids so these are all very complex and private things and so we made sure that our systems were more individualized so for example if you ordered any medicine on practo and you len wanted to find out what where is my order and you call our support line so first of all nobody in support could see your order at that point in time an otp would go to the go to the phone number from which you placed the order and then you have to give the otp for us to be able to read your order again for a few amount of time so, and then only you could do it so this made sure that you know really the person who actually had ordered was the person you know who was actually uh, calling and asking about an update on the order so you know it sounds a little extreme to many people but you know at least in healthcare we believe that you know that was the right thing to do and even if that meant that made the job harder for marketers uh, it made the job harder for say from a revenue standpoint because you know we could uh, in some ways reach to less users that was a better trade off to make for the long term uh, love and uh, trust on the brand than short term revenue and i think eventually a lot of this will come down to that so if you're a brand where a large, very large cohort of your users cares about privacy you know then that is what you will be forced to do uh, and if you're a brand where a large cohort of users is neutral about this or doesn't care about it as much then you will probably have more leeway but i but I, 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 mean, i think that's how it's going to be i don't like i think there's this idea of like our apple like what apple is trying to do with these changes are actually really are really you know they they don't want you to have a pervasive id so like people can sell ids and like target people across companies and i think that's definitely right i think the result of that of people not being able to track and dupe their campaigns i think that's like something that maybe there are options where you can do that mm-hmm. in a privacy type way and i think that's kind of what, what we're going after but I, yeah. i i mean i understand the idea fa was used and it came specifically for attribution and tracking purposes for marketers and i think that was great but then i think it started getting used in all this like people were selling yeah. uh creating profiles yeah. and selling them and yeah. so i think there's yeah. like i think i think there is definitely abuse right uh, the in, in I, I, areas, I think there is abuse uh, it was so. not like this idea that oh you know you you clicked on an ad and the person who bought the ad knows that like i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing but that the idea that like now everyone now not just that person but all these other companies know about that and because you clicked on one ad now everyone's going to start selling you like skirts or something yeah. i think that's like how it's been about worse that's that's yeah, so for, for example right. yeah i think and, and i think it also depends on what it is you bought so for example you as a user were looking up or bought contraceptive right and let's yeah. say and this is this is you know this is this is something that we have seen many in many of our user stories at bracto and you know so the husband wants to have a kid and the wife does not have a kid and the wife is in a contraceptive and she's not told the husband that she's in a contraceptive right and these are real stories these are real things that happen in society now husband is standing behind the wife and she's on a laptop and just because she bought a contraceptive online that ad is falling her everywhere yeah that's not okay this is a slightly extreme example to make a point uh, which which still is a real example but let's look at the example you could apply that to many yeah with which there could be many many such things many many such things and i think there is definitely overuse of some of these things and i think it will be good for some of this to be a little bit more controlled 
Yeah. Uh, and in some, in many ways, uh, you know, Google and Apple are sort of the gatekeepers on on these things. So, and I guess in some ways, from an advertising standpoint, even Facebook. The real question, I think, is how large an impact this would have on actual ways to advertise. So, I think the company to watch for, from my perspective, you know, if I was to sort of look at structures of things, would be Google, uh, because. Obviously, if you look at business incentives and structures, Apple has all of the incentives in the world to shut down, shut this down as much as possible. You're right. They, they don't can, make money from ads. Right? Just, but Google, and they have taken, yeah. and privacy for them is like a major brand tenant now. Yeah. I mean, not now, but I mean, it has been since, you know, forever, even 2010, 11, you know, Steve yeah. Jobs talked about privacy and consent and stuff like that. So it's clearly something they've been thinking about for a while. But Google still has to make revenue. And they would be up against Facebook, which is pretty much the only other advertiser. So, I mean, large platform, like between them, they have like 95% of the ad, digital ad business, uh, pretty much. So if Google does it and Facebook doesn't, then what happens? Or if Facebook doesn't, Google doesn't. Yeah. How do you keep advertisers if platform A versus platform B becomes dramatically different from a targeting standpoint? I think market forces there will act. But I think there are two parts. One, whether is it available? And two, whether as a brand, you should use it. So I, I feel in some way or form, it will eventually be available and, you know, our technology will just get better and some controls will get better. The question is, as a brand, how much of it do you use? And as a marketer, when you think about your brand, how much of it do you use? And that depends entirely on your understanding of your user and what they respond to. So there may be a lot of, uh, you know, perhaps luxury brands or, or certain types of brands where consumers don't appreciate this kind of inclusiveness. Yeah. And, you know, those brands would probably be better served in not using any of this. And then there will be some brands where people are probably, uh, I don't care, uh, like maybe buying bulbs, for example. I don't know. And you know those, those brands might be more fortunate or may have more leeway in using some of these tools. So we'll see. I think it's a good debate. Uh, it's an open question, I guess. We'll find out once they make the change and see how much impact really happens. But hopefully, uh, in some ways, you know, your, your brilliant folks at Branch will figure it out. So, I mean, I think that's where yeah. kind of also, I think we're waiting and we have some a path forward uh, regardless of what the software um, yeah. within networks say but we're definitely like ready to make changes there's something big changes in like yeah. both apple's policy and and uh but it's been but an interesting I, I time for your, sure i definitely agree with the earlier point though that i think it is good for the company that you're buying from to have information about what you're buying and you yourself uh, as a consumer, for, yeah, I don't think that, but I think for them good. to use that's it, actually a good thing. But yeah. exactly, and for them to use do. it for the, internally is good. For them to use it internally, it's good. Like if if I understand your habits better, I can probably make my products better, make better products tailored to you. For example, if you're a cosmetics brand, yeah. you know that could be invaluable for you to understand. But to but, use that for but, retargeting, I think that's and I think yeah. you know even when you look at like our audience, we have a, and I think a lot of the audience builders are probably going to go away, which I yeah. think is actually okay. But the okay. attribution it's good to stay there. And even if it's not exact, and like we call it predictive matching, it will give you a better understanding. But again, you won't be able to do the exact match anymore, which is, might not be the yeah. worst thing in the world, right? Okay. Yeah, so I, I think, I think, yeah, I think it, it should certainly correct a little bit is what, at least what that's what I think. Yeah. Uh, but I am a self-confessed privacy advocate. So, yeah. No, I think that's great. So. It's, it's, uh, I think it's an interesting debate. So, okay, this was awesome. I want to end with our lightning round, which is three fun okay. questions. Uh, if you had to delete all the apps and you only had one left on your phone, which would you pick? WhatsApp. Okay. 
you are a social person. This definitely, it's really interesting. We've heard many uh, people either like want to be introvert, introverts and extroverts. It's either communication or something creative. Uh, I would guess you're an extrovert. I would, I, I would, I would actually do one better and say if there was one app I wish I would love for someone to remove from my phone, it would be the phone app. Uh, you know, like just don't call me. Oh. You WhatsApp me, send me a message, just don't call me. It's, I think, you know, phone calls have become just intrusive now. And, you know, you have people randomly calling you, people trying to sell you all kinds of things. True, but your yeah, friends, and, when and, they, they're in trouble, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you can WhatsApp call me, I guess. So that works. But, uh, but yeah, but the, the phone app where, you know, unsolicited people, like yeah, on my phone today, uh, you know, on my phone today, uh, you know, this brilliant feature that Apple made, which is silence unknown callers. Yeah. I have that on all the time. So if I don't have your number stored, yeah, my phone will not even ring. I will just get your call as a missed call and that's it. And then I can call you back when I have time. I, what I've realized is we, we have so much break in flow, you know, just because somebody called us. Uh, and, you know, even if I silence the call, I still have diverted my attention away. And, uh, you know, that's probably not not good for whatever it is that I'm trying to do. So, yeah, so there's one app I would wish someone would take away would be the wow. phone app. I don't get that many calls, but okay. That's <laughs> interesting. Okay, so uh, if you could have an app that you could talk to an animal, what would that be? Do you, you have one in mind? Wow. Animal, I mean, maybe the whale, uh, but I would actually like to talk to trees more. Okay, I'll tell okay, you why. that's fine. I'll tell that's you why. Fine. You can pick I'll trees. Why, because, you know, it said that history is written by the victors. So we don't really know what really happened. Yeah. And, you know, trees have been there for thousands and thousands of years. Like the oldest tree is like 5,000 years old. So it was there in 3000 BC, pretty much. I would like to talk to them and figure out what went on in the world in the last 5,000 years. Right? I think that would be kind of cool to know because, you know, they could tell us so many stories about, you know, what really happened and, you know, what all the secrets were. Kind of like institutionalized knowledge in some ways. Uh, you know, if I could talk to them, that would be pretty epic. That's pretty deep. I love that. <laughs> and then uh what's the most unlikely app on your phone i don't know i mean i have i actually have very very few apps on my phone i'll tell you a very unlikely app i don't have on my phone i don't <laughs> okay. have facebook and instagram on my phone i mean i'm a marketer but i don't have facebook and instagram on my phone at all i got rid of pretty other than twitter i got rid of all social media apps on my phone so I don't have TikTok, I don't have, uh, I don't have Facebook, I don't have. So whenever I have to check this stuff for work, I actually go to the browser and check it. I realized I was just spending way too much time on this. So especially since the screen time feature came around and I realized, and I was like, wait, how much time did I spend on this? Yeah. Uh, you know, next the, day I just deleted all of those apps. The screen time feature. So actually the set of apps I have on my phone are very, very few. Maybe like 15 apps or something. I think the point of the question was for the listeners to get to know you better. So uh, I think that definitely your answer definitely fit the intent of the question. <laughs> the, the intent. Okay. Well, this was amazing. I thought we talked about so many different things and we had a really interesting, a uh, bunch of different interesting debates. So we are really grateful for your time. So thank you so much for joining us. It was us. really fun. Really fun, Mara. I hope your readers enjoy as well. Uh, and uh, you know, hopefully we get to speak again soon. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing.